vasodilators. We're, we're, we're moving on now from, from those. Now we're going to talk about vasodilators in general. Now we can do arterial vasodilation, which is going to reduce what? Afterload. The pressure against the pressure the heart has to pump against. It's going to reduce the workload of the heart, right? Does that sound good to you? All right. That may increase perfusion. Why would that increase perfusion? Okay, so if you want more blood to go to an area, what do you do? You vasodilate. If you want less blood to go to an area, you constrict it. So this may increase perfusion of the heart. Fair enough. Venous dilation reduces venous return to the heart, which is going to cause a reduction in preload. Reducing preload is going to reduce contractility through what law? Starling's law of the heart. What's what? Capacitance. Um, it means storage. Because veins store blood and then can dump it into the heart when they constrict. And it, by reducing contractility and preload, you can also possibly decrease cardiac output. So now, some vasodilators do one of these more than the other. Some are specific to arteries, some are specific to veins, some do both. And there's an even more tricky issue, too. Go ahead, ask me the trickier issue. Not all arteries are alike. <gasps> so, there are some vasodilators that will dilate big arteries, but not small arteries. What's the name for small arteries? Arterioles. What's more responsible for, for afterload? Small ones or big ones? Small ones. What's responsible for tissue perfusion? Big ones or small ones? Small ones. So you see, it can get tricky. But that's okay, because we don't worry about that. In general, therapeutic uses. High blood pressure reduces them. But what's the major side effect of, of vasodilating suddenly? Okay, hypotension but on the heart. Reflex tachycardia. And that can be dangerous. We can use them to treat angio, angina pectoris. We can also use them for heart failure. Because what happens in heart failure? Lots of fluid. So that fluid overload, you can like, bam, make them go open. Um, we can use it in MI, because during an MI you get clamped down of arteries. And you can also use them in shock to preserve renal function. All right, adverse effects. Postural hypertension, <coughs> reflex tachycardia, blood volume expansion. So if you combine, what? what? What's postural you tell me. What's posture? What, how is your posture different than mine? Mine's better. No. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, you don't have scoliosis, but what are you doing right now? And what am I doing? Now, if you were to stand up suddenly and woo, what would that be? So it's, like it's the same thing as orthostatic, yes. Because it's more fun to do it this way, and now she'll remember it. Because I've tortured her. And you'll remember it, too, because you had fun at her expense. You see how it is? All right. Now, if you vasodilate, your body will, will try to compensate by increasing blood volume. And you can block that from happening by giving... 
diuretic. And then the last one is headache. So if, by the way, what's the difference between like ibuprofen and ibuprofen for headache? What? If you have Excedrin, what's Excedrin? What makes it special? It is aspirin and Tylenol, but it also has caffeine. Why does caffeine help headaches? Because it vasoconstricts. So constricting arteries in your head helps headaches. Therefore, dilating arteries in the head causes headaches. So one of the major adverse effects of these is headache. All right. Now, hydralazine, minoxidil, and diazoxide. That's a fun word. Diazoxide. These are used for arterial vasodilation. Minoxidil, what do we know it as? Hair club for men? Rogaine. But before it was used to grow hair, it was used in ICUs to maintain renal perfusion in shock. Yeah. Hydrolazine is relatively short acting and is not really used that often, um, except in heart failure patients at the VA. Diazoxide is used for hypertensive crisis. So if you have a patient who's got like a diastolic blood pressure of 120, they might use diazoxide to bring it down very, very suddenly. Now, these other drugs operate on both venous and arteries, veins and arteries. Sodium nitroprusside is only used IV and it's used primarily for hypertensive crisis with the patient who's got a blood pressure higher than 120. All right. Organic nitrates. We've got uh, nitroglycerin and isosorbide dinitrate. These are used for um, angina pectoris, heart attacks, and heart failure. So nitroglycerin we can give sublingual, intravenously, or transdermally. So the transdermal comes in two forms. It comes as a paste, comes like a toothpaste tube, and you have this little card that has half an inch, one inch, one and a half inches, and two inches. And the physician will prescribe nitro paste one inch or one and a half inches. And so what you do is you squirt the stuff out onto the card and then you tape it onto the patient uh, on their skin. Typically on the upper body like the chest area or arm. Question there? Oh, the spray is still sublingual though. All right, so nitroglycerin, I think we're, do we talk about it more? No. All right, so I have to say it all from memory. Nitroglycerin, how's it given? Sublingual, IV, or transdermal. With the transdermal paste, the important thing is that when you take it off to put a new one on, clean it and put it in a different area. Now, your body can build up tolerance to, um, to organic nitrates. So you don't want to give them continuously. You want to allow what we call a nitrate-free period. Two hours is usually enough. So sometimes the physician will order it, you know, 
every six hours put a new, or every eight hours put a new one on, but take it off every six hours. Um, and then the transdermal patch is just a patch you put on. Right. Now, the uh, isosorbide is a PO version, and so that's just given by mouth. All right, what do you think a major side effect of nitrates are going to be? Okay, hypotension. What else? Headache. And the opposite, not bradycardia, tachycardia. All right. If you... If it's given IV, it's typically given in the ICU, and it's going to be titrated to blood pressure and chest pain. So you want to give enough to stop the chest pain, but not so much that their blood pressure bottoms out. So you're going to raise it up a little bit or turn it down a little bit based on the doctor's orders between those two parameters. So it's not the Jack Nicholson. <laughs> oh, Jack Nicholson, yeah. Oh, major, major drug interaction between nitroglycerin and the number one party pill in America, Viagra. Viagra. Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, all three, in combination with nitroglycerin, equals what, what's Amanda's favorite thing on her shirts? What, what's the favorite thing you like to wear? Skull and crossbones. So, Viagra plus nitroglycerin equals death. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. All right. Um, previously studied agents. All right, we talked very, very briefly about clonidine in Pathopharm 1, or did we not? We may have skipped it this time around. All right. It's an indirect adrenergic antagonist. It affects alpha-2 receptors. Now, tell me about alpha-2 receptors for just a moment. All right. So, the front row, at least, is giving me the right answer. So, what is this thing right here? What, what's this? It's a synapse, and these are synaptic vesicles, and they have something in them. What is that something? A neurotransmitter. Now, we're talking about, we're talking about the sympathetic nervous system, so that would be, say again? Norepinephrine. Not, remember, epinephrine is released by your <laughs> adrenal glands. Norepinephrine is in nerves. All right, so it's going to release this norepinephrine, and they're going to diffuse, and they're going to hit receptors. What receptors would be over here? Three kinds. What kinds would those be? No, not nicotinic. What's missing? Alpha 2 is missing because where does alpha 2 live? 
alpha 2 lives over here. So some of these are going to diffuse over here and activate alpha 2 on the neuron that released the norepinephrine in the first place. So what's it going to do to that neuron? It's going to say, hey, don't release as much norepinephrine. We have enough, thank you. So it's kind of like a what loop? Negative feedback loop. Ah. All right, now, clonidine works by activating alpha-2 receptors, which causes less norepinephrine release in the body. Now, it acts in the central nervous system, not the peripheral nervous system, which means it's going to cause less norepinephrine release everywhere in the body. We use it for uh, hypertension, and the major adverse effect is hypotension. hypotension, yes. It can also cause bradycardia. It can also, oh, oh yes, can cause drowsiness. And it doesn't act very long. It wears off quickly. But it works really, really quickly. So we like to give it in what places? Emergency rooms. So we like to give it to the emergency room and then send the patient home. And then their blood pressure goes back up in the middle of the night. Yeah. It also comes as a patch called catapress. Um, and it can also be given intrathecally. What does that mean? Intrathecally. Into the thecal? <laughs> what? What does intrathecal mean? Into the spinal cord. Did you say that? Good job, Tiff. Ani. You don't know how you feel about what? Well, they're the ones who said it. Probably never. <laughs> All right. So, what would we use it for when it's given intrathecally? Cancer pain. All right, we're done with that. Um... Okay, let's talk very briefly about the process of, di of hypertension treatment. Now you've learned all the drugs, or most of the drugs anyway. Now, the first thing is we have to diagnose it. How is it diagnosed? How is it diagnosed? Take a blood pressure, and let's say that Fernanda's blood pressure is 145 over 92. Does she have hypertension? No. Nope. Nope. What do we have to do? We have to have her come back another day and have it taken again. You need two separate readings in order to confirm the diagnosis. Now, 142 over 95 is hypertension. 
Now, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to rule out secondary causes. Give me a couple secondary causes. You should, we've talked about one today, in fact. Okay, stress is not a secondary cause. That's a primary cause. Okay, medications like what? Name one. No. Nope. A drug that would cause hypertension. What? Think of a drug that has hypertension and hyperglycemia as a side effect. And we use them to treat those, say, patients with COPD. Steroids. All right, so that would cause an artificial what syndrome? Cushing syndrome. Addison's is the opposite. That's when you stop them suddenly. So Cushing syndrome or iatrogenic version by giving too many steroids can cause high blood pressure. Give me another secondary cause. We talked about one just today. You can use captopril to detect it. Oh. Renal artery stenosis. Hyperaldosteronism. This is on the first, the first set of slides from last week. So you can go review those. But we're going to try and rule out secondary causes. How are we going to do that? We're going to look for some. So we're going to check the thyroid gland. We're going to check her her BMP. We're going to get a urinalysis. We're going to see if there's any protein in the urine, see how much damage has been done there. We're going to assess other risk factors. What other risk factors are we talking about? Okay, does she have diabetes? Does she smoke? Is she overweight? Does she exercise? What are these risk factors for? Heart disease. So what are the five end organ target, dam target organs for high blood pressure? Just heart, kidney, not liver, not lungs, eyes, brain, one more to go arteries themselves. So five of them. All right. So we are going to educate. We're going to educate on the disease. Why do we have to tell people about high blood pressure? Why would we have to educate them about high blood pressure? Because patients say, who cares? I feel fine. So we're going to tell them, if you don't treat this, you could get blindness. You could get a heart attack. You could get a stroke. You could get heart or renal failure. You could have heart failure. You could have peripheral arterial disease. You could end up with a stomach, a tube in your stomach and being fed through a tube. You might not be able to wipe your own butt. You could end up with contractures. You might end up to where you can't understand what your wife is saying. Oh, no, don't tell them that one. <laughs> All right, so we're going to educate them about the disease itself. We're also going to educate them about diet. What two major dietary changes can we make that will lower blood pressure? Sodium is one, but it doesn't work for everyone. 
Who does it work for the best? No. <laughs> okay, that's who it works for the least. Who does it work for the least? Say it again. Asian patients. In fact, the Japanese eat five times the amount of sodium that Americans do, and they have far less blood pressure than us. However, who's got the most then? African Americans. So, what you do, you have the patient eat a low sodium diet and see if their blood pressure goes down. If it doesn't, there's no reason to torture them with a low sodium diet. So, the other major dietary change is what we call the DASH diet. The DASH diet for hypertension is lean proteins, so like poultry and fish, lots of vegetables and fruit, and low fats and red meats. It's very sad. I do not follow that diet myself. Next one is exercise. Exercise improves hypertension. It improves endothelial dysfunction, reducing, reducing what? Damage to the arteries. It also improves heart function, reducing damage to the heart. Um, weight loss. Even if you don't exercise or if you don't diet, if you do something that makes you lose weight, better off. Stop smoking will also help. Now, some patients do have Hypertension that is highly stress-associated, and for them, taking relaxation training may help. But for most people, not going to help at all. All right, and then the last one is drugs. So let's talk drugs for one moment. Um, all right, if we treat hypertension, if we reduce hypertension, we'll reduce heart attacks by 20 to 25%. If we treat hypertension, we can reduce strokes 35 to 40%. If we treat heart failure, we reduce heart failure by more than 50%. Pretty impressive numbers, eh? Aye. And uh, we will talk about the rest of this tomorrow, and then we'll be done.